everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. My name is Ryan Zauk, and for the last time, I will be your host today after almost two years behind this crappy mic that I've carried with me around the world since the first day I started hosting. Who will be joining me as my final guest? None other than Justin Overdorf, Lightspeed's newest fintech venture partner and former Stripe exec, and of course, a fellow Wharton alum. Justin and I have a great conversation today as we talk about his new role at Lightspeed and why he left arguably the greatest startup in the world, fintech or not, to join the Lightspeed team. We trace his background from mortgage trading at Bank of America to today and discuss what he built at Stripe, how to narrow your focus in venture, what fintech sectors he's most excited about investing in, how he's thinking about valuation in this raging bull market and credit cycle, misunderstood TAMs, Facebook Libra's Leroy Jenkins moment, a rapid-fire question round, and so much more. It's worth noting, given some of the content of today's discussion, that this interview was recorded just a couple months back, and of course, none of this is securities advice and strictly for Wharton Fintech purposes. Wharton Fintech family, it has been the honor of my professional career to bring such great guests to you. I'll have a little formal goodbye at the end of the episode as well. Without further ado, let's get started one last time. Justin, welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. You have the unique honor of probably being my last guest on the show, and I couldn't be happier to share the mic one last time with a Wharton alum and Lightspeed's newest fintech partner based out of New York. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Great. So I know there was a lot of hype around you joining and people were digging into your background, mostly coming from this great career at Stripe. But I'd love to give the listeners a little bit more of an overview about you. Can you kind of start us at the beginning, maybe, you know, the the first post-college role, walk us through your time to Wharton and then to Stripe? Uh, So my career has sort of, I think, you know, fintech or financial services rather has been sort of, I guess, the, the running theme in various like pockets of my career. So when I I left school out of undergrad. I graduated from William Mary, and I actually traded mortgages uh, on Wall Street. When I decided to leave, ended up joining a, a colleague of mine, actually. So someone that I met at Bank of America uh, in my training class went to Summit Partners in Boston, and sort of we were friends. And he sort of pinged me and said, "Hey, you know, uh, I'm, I'm headed up to Summit. You, know, you should check this out. I think you'd be really interested in it. And so I had no idea what venture capital, growth equity, et cetera, was uh, at all. And so interviewed up there, joined, and spent the next four and a half years um, investing mostly in SaaS, healthcare IT, and some business services companies. And you know, Summit's reputation precedes itself. It's a growth equity firm that's built on a, a sourcing model. And it's a great experience in that I learned a lot of really important lessons uh, that I, I took with me into my operating roles and certainly back into investing. Specifically, I think Summit is actually very good at thinking about risk and how to price risk and really about finding opportunities where there might be um, unique upside that others don't understand. And so I spent four and a half years there and then I made my way to Wharton. And my time at Wharton was really formative for me in that I didn't know what I wanted to do right away going into business school. And, you know, I spent two years trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do. And and when I came out of the second year, I started interning at Techstars in New York City with Dave Tish and uh, Adam Rothenberg. And so I spent um, some time, you know, doing the train thing every uh, week up to New York City. And when I left, I joined full term with them and spent basically a year and a half 
working with companies that were at their most formative stage. You know, we're talking two people, you know, small teams starting out with just an idea. And that was a new experience for me because the you know, companies at Summit that I worked with were obviously very scaled and much different than, you know, what is a, a seed level, you know, day one type opportunity. And so working with founders at that stage was incredibly interesting to me. It helped me get a much better perspective of like what the entrepreneurial journey looks like. To leave uh, Techstars, like how I kind of like made the next move was leaving Techstars was Dave Tish and, and Adam Rothenberg uh, decided to kind of go full time with Box Group. And so at the time, it was kind of a good opportunity because my wife and I were both trying to figure out like where we were going to be. My wife was in Boston. I was in New York. And we were trying to figure out how to get to the same place. And so we decided just to pick up and move to California. We didn't really have jobs. Um, we sort of just started looking and I, uh, ended up, um, kind of connecting with a former colleague of mine from summit partners, uh, a guy named Mike Gaffari, who was a principal there when I was a, uh, an associate and Mike was the SVP of corp dev biz dev at Yelp. And at the time Yelp was just about to go public and he was building out a BD and corp dev uh, team. And so after spending some time with him and a couple other companies while I was out there, I spent time with Dropbox and a whole bunch of other Yammer before Yammer got acquired. I ended up joining Mike. And so we spent the next three and a half years building out the biz dev corp dev effort at Yelp. And it was a really exciting time. It was, it was mm-hmm. interesting to me, but the business of Yelp is certainly like the ads business. It's a tough business to be in, right? It's, it's, it's a local ads are a, are a tough business. It's a good business, but it's a, it's a very tough play. And so when I was sort of like starting to think about, you know, what I wanted to do in my career, it so happened that, that Stripe reached out and I had had this sort of long running kind of interest in FinTech. My interest in it came more from some folks that I actually met on Twitter, folks like Howard Lindzen, who was really looking at fintech more from like the Wall Street angle, the tools that Wall Street was using, things like and, and businesses that he had started. You know, he started Wall Street and he had uh, built StockTwits. And so um, at the time, Howard kind of had this community of of Twitter folks, fintwit, if you will, that <laughs> right. were really kind of you know, getting interested to in, in financial technology more from that angle than what I think we think of financial technology today. But um, I, so I started spending time with Howard. I, he had a couple of conferences he, uh, that he has in San Diego that he gets together. He has something called Stocktoberfest and then right. um, Lindsay Palooza. And, uh, you know, started going to those and meeting people in various places. A, a funny story is like, I saw the, the Robinhood founders pitch to a, a room full of maybe 40 people in a bar. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, before awesome. like they had pulled their, their money together. I, I was not uh, smart enough in any way <laughs> to put any money in that company at the time. But um, to see that kind of happen and then, you know, a few years later, sort of like look back on that, you know, it's obviously, obviously really funny. But, you know, getting into fintech sort of happened in a very slow burn way. I was getting really interested in things like Wealthfront, you know, Betterment, like what was happening on the personal financial management side. And then what are the tools that Wall Street was using you know, trading platforms, things of that nature. And so right. that sort of like spurred my interest. And then Stripe came calling really in terms of came looking for people that were, had BD experience and they were looking to build out the team. And at the time, you know, the BD team was rather small. It was Christina Cordova um, and a guy named uh, Devesh Sanapadli. And so there was basically just two people that I, that I joined. And so, you know, joined Stripe after, after three and a half years at Yelp. And, you know, my time at Stripe was an incredible experience. I was very fortunate to be the right place at the right time, frankly. The people that I worked with at Stripe mm-hmm. were phenomenal, and I'm forever grateful for that experience. So we have to talk a little bit about Stripe. It is 
probably the most hyped fintech company of the last few years. The valuation is pushing $100 billion. There's a lot going on with the company, and I think it is just extremely admired by all. So I'd love to dive into your time a little bit at Stripe. Can you talk about what specifically, you know, were a couple projects that you were working on first, and then second, what you think were some of the keys to success, whether from a culture or product development standpoint that made Stripe just such an amazing success over the last decade? Yeah, sure. So when I joined the, the business development partnerships team, was interesting because the the company really had a, a rather small sales team that was mostly focused on inside sales. And sort of the BD's function to some extent was sort of this exploratory team that was trying to find other areas of, of business innovation and business model growth, specifically working on partnerships like you know, the team was working on things like the relationship with Shopify and finding large platform distribution opportunities, the longstanding and large relationships and how those business models or like how the business you know, relationships would be constructed was really kind of falling to our team. Um, we would sort of go out to the Shopify's of the world. Um, I worked on Xero, WooCommerce uh, were some of the larger platforms that, that I worked on the deals for and led. And really what that looked like was learning about these businesses, figuring out the problems that they were trying to solve with regard to payments, and then how can Stripe's product fit into that problem? And then frankly, construct a business model relationship that is beneficial to both sides. And then sort of what started to happen is once we figured out like, hey, this is the business model for large e-commerce platforms, then you sort of like passed it over to the sales team and said, okay, hey, like this is the box. And this is how the product and, and the business model go together. Now go do this at scale, right? And so, because we were a very small team. And so then we would do that with things like invoicing. So, you know, Zero, FreshBooks, we figured out how the invoice kind of like business model would work and what that would structure look like and then handle that off as well. So that was kind of the first iteration of the team. The second kind of iteration was really sort of doing things like more product partnerships. So things like how does Stripe integrate Plaid to the ACH business model, right? And how do we make that work and how do we work with them to not only figure out what the product should look like, but how do we you know, develop a business model that works for both sides? And then there was you know, a couple other iterations where we started to do some things. Uh, one of the efforts that I started to lead was kind of like a new business incubation effort, which is really figuring out like what are new businesses that Stripe from a product side could actually launch. And so I was very fortunate to be on the ground floor uh, with a small team of, of three of my other colleagues, one from the, the business development team, a colleague of mine, Harsha, and then two folks from the finance team, we got together and really basically incubated what is Stripe Capital today, the lending program. And so building that out from day one, you know, writing out the document that was essentially the strategy long-term, how do we go from zero to one? How do we actually test making loans to people? How do we get some money back, right? <laughs> it's easy to lend money, it's hard to get it back. And then how do we really figure out what that looks like at scale? And so incubating that, and kind of launching that into the world. At Stripe, we called it Project Bootstrap, which is, you know, it remains a kind of very soft spot in my heart for something that I worked on. And that was an incredible experience. And then in addition to that, you know, also worked on things like Stripe issuing. A team kind of got that up and running, but I, I worked on the first set of commercial contracts that, that, uh, that launched in the world. So many iconic products and partnerships spawned there during your time. And so back to my earlier question, what's maybe the one thing that you think made Stripe what it really is today? I'd say it's, it's two major things. I, I do think Patrick and John had a relentless focus 
on hiring the best people they could they could find and i think that that stuff starts to have a bit of like a um you know almost a uh, flywheel effect like great people bring more great people into the circle and so i think that is one and um two i think from a cultural standpoint it sounds cliche and i know a lot of people who work at stripe will laugh at this but there is this model it's like we haven't won yet at any point in time and i think that's really it, it sounds cheesy it sounds cliche but i think like the reason why it works is because it results in this maniacal focus of never taking your foot off the gas right never letting up on any of the things that you are striving for whether that's product execution whether that's sales driven revenue whatever it is that sort of like is this underpinning concept that really drives the people and i think um that kind of like pursuit of excellence is a constant piece of the puzzle there well justin at least you didn't say it's still day one i was really really expecting that bezos cliche any second <laughs> so last question on that notion of not having one yet what do you think the future might hold for stripe over let's say the next two to five years i'm sure everyone's anticipating this yeah, I mean, I haven't been there for a year, so it's it's and, and things you know, as you well know, I mean, these high growth companies, things change very yeah. fast, right? But I would just say, look, I think you're going to see a, a, a lot of the same in that you know, there's this relentless focus on building products that grow the GDP of the internet, right? I mean, that's like the that's the north star, right? And it's there constantly. So I think you're going to see the continuation of things. You know, they just launched uh, you know a bunch of revenue recognition products. You know, I think it's this building new products and services that sort of sit on top of the payment and connect wedge, mm -hmm. which allows them to do things, you know, from business side of expanding margins, make the product stickier. I think one of the things that is sort of, I think it's understood, but I don't think it's, I don't think people give it enough kind of like time is like the connect platform is this gigantic canon of distribution, right? That, that sort of Stripe basically can build products and services mm -hmm. that sort of bolt on top of, you know, the payments and connect kind of wedge. And it's just this massive distribution cannon that you just kind of, you know, very easily push right. out into the market, right? And I think that is a huge advantage, both from like a customer acquisition standpoint, mm -hmm. but also from a, you know, as you're sort of trying to, like the, the way to think about it, the land of expand model of product-like growth, it's like, look, like you kind of get your, your little kind of like hooks in and then you just grow the number of products Right. That people are using right and then it makes it very sticky and so mm -hmm. i i think that's what what things look like and i know that's not a very controversial or maybe like you know out there answer but i think that's what you're going to see it's just the same thing we've seen so far mm -hmm. absolutely so if, I, I would also yeah. say you're probably going to see some MA. i mean just like mm -hmm. you i would think as the company gets as big as it is i would think there's going to be some some pretty sizable acquisitions over the next five to ten years which i'm excited to see yeah, absolutely. And they'll definitely have the currency and, and firepower <laughs> to make those deals over the next decade. So you were at this kind of golden goose opportunity here at Stripe. You had this great role. The company is soaring. It's as interesting as it gets. But then you left the company and after some time off, ended up joining Lightspeed. So I'm sure the audience would love to hear about kind of your decision making process, how this relationship with Lightspeed came about. And then, you know, what made you decide to take the jump at uh, the end of the day? Sure. Well, I mean, I'd been in Stripe for, for six years, so so it, it was it was a long time. And really, for me, it was it was starting to kind of think about like what's the next kind of phase of my career. We had moved after spending eight years in, in in the West Coast. We had moved east to the New York area, and it was really starting to figure out like what's the what is that next kind of move. And so I was fortunate enough 
that my background and work experience at Stripe and the reputation that I had developed as an angel investor opened pretty much any door I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a ton of kind of like opportunity came from just like that, which is, you know, I remain very frankly grateful that that's the case. And so I knew when I was leaving what I wanted to do, which is I, I knew I wanted to go back into investing. My, my experience on the angel investing side had really honed the skill set, but really heightened my interest in kind of like doing it full time and, and making that kind of a career. And so uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I also knew that I needed to take some time off. So I did. I took, you know, a couple months off. I didn't really tell anybody that I really left or didn't make any public announcement. But I talked to a lot of firms, big firms, small firms, more emerging funds. And the process for me was really all about finding the right fit for me personally, but also the right fit for where my family was and what we're trying to do and, uh, and what our goals are. And so I've known the Lightspeed team for a while now. Uh, Semel Shaw is a close friend of mine. I'm an advisor uh, and LP in his Haystack funds. He's a venture partner at Lightspeed. And so he introduced me to the team back in 2016. And so I've been building relationships with the partnership there for, for quite a long time. When word started to spread that, that I had left, and kind of started to eke out into the ecosystem, a bunch of firms started to reach out, including Lightspeed. And I spent time getting to know a lot of these partners at many firms. The thing I kept coming back to with Lightspeed was they had this motto, which is like one Lightspeed. And and it really means that the firm is above the individual and everyone wins or loses the team. But I think the reason why that was interesting to me was, you know, venture can be a very lonely business. Right. And I tend to gravitate more towards team approaches. And a lot of firms say that they're team oriented. But in spending my time with various firms and partners, there was a lack of consistency in a lot of ways with how people right. speak about their times at their firms. And Lightspeed was just, in, it was amazing how consistent every partner, every person that I talked to talked about one Lightspeed. Every person talked about it being a, we're going to win as a team and we're going to lose as a team. Your success is my success, et cetera. And that really resonated to me. It was a super strong signal to me because it wasn't this like we're talking about it you know it's like the proof is more in like how consistently we do it and the second piece was lightspeed had a strong fintech portfolio with bets like affirm and carta and phoenix and blend but the firm didn't have someone who was exclusively focused on fintech you had lots of people in the firm making great bets and doing this on a sort of like you know part-time basis and a lot of the firms that i talked to already had fintech dedicated teams But Lightspeed was really interesting in that it didn't have that one person and they were looking for someone to wrap their arms around fintech and really kind of like own it. And so my view was their brand plus the complementary fit of my skill set and the angel investing reputation that I had built on the fintech side was really a great kind of combination. And so that's how I ended up there. That's great and a great story and, and very true. I think as anybody is looking for you know the right role, they have to look for that consistency because every single website's going to say you know we're thesis driven, we're one team, one dream, values focused. But great to have that consistency as kind of proof for the firm. So now that you have this amazing platform behind you, I know Lightspeed has already been active with the major alloy announcement recently. I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, fintech trends that you're paying most attention to or any theses that you've been developing since your time there as you look to deploy capital. Look, I mean, I think for me, it's one of these things where fintech is so massive, right? It's it's like such a big, you know, it's it's almost too broad of a of a category. And I think it means many things. For me, I'm super focused. I, I learned this lesson actually from my partner, Jeremy Liu, who I think is, you know, a phenomenal, obviously, you know, amazing investor with, with his reputation and, and track record. But he sort of has this kind of mindset, which is 
it's really easy in venture to chase every tennis ball that kind of is coming your way. You know, <laughs> deal flow is coming in. And what you really have to spend time on really is, is thinking about like, where do you have either A, asymmetric information advantage, whether that's your experience or your network, or B, where you can win deals, right? Like, where can you win deals? And the reality is, is like, given my background, like product-led growth, bottoms up sales, APIs and infrastructure, B2B, like these are the things that I'm excited about. Number one, because uh, that's where I've spent my experience, but it's also because Mm. these are the deals that I know that like I have asymmetric information. I have an asymmetric advantage in terms of, I know how these companies are going to build these businesses because I went through it. It's right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the mindset I have. And so those are the areas of focus that I've, I've been spending my time on inclusive of B2B payments, um, is, is, is the other, you know, kind of big category. So those are the big buckets. That doesn't mean that I'm not interested in things like consumer fintech, and I, I very much am, <laughs> and I'm spending time there. But in terms of where I am personally getting a lot of inbound interest and where I think I can win, it's in those categories. Right? So Justin, with all of these great companies coming out, and in the sectors that you just mentioned, some of the most red hot sectors in fintech or the startup world in general, but with these great companies and kind of macro trends behind them, usually comes lofty valuations. And anybody who's been following venture for the last year has seen that a lot of valuations absolutely soaring back to back up rounds within six months for some companies. So as you think about deploying capital now, how are you thinking about valuation and making sure you're not overpaying for certain companies? Are you just kind of kind of follow the rising tide? How are you thinking about this over the next year? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, look, I think this is like the hot question, right. uh, you know, across everything. I mean, look, like the reality is, um, you know, valuations are, they are rich. They're very full. As someone who is now in the business of deploying capital, it is certainly is, it doesn't give you pause necessarily, but it's mm-hmm. certainly, you know, your, your eye opens, you know, and you're sort of trying to figure out like, what does that mean? How do you want to play? And I think the big thing really is like, it's trying to figure out where your entry points are, right, from valuation. And so right now, you know, one of the things like, Look, seed rounds are happening at pretty lofty valuations. And, you know, pre-seed and seed and A, it's kind of hard to tell what the difference is, frankly, between any of them, right? right? And so to your point around the fact that the round velocities, like the speed between rounds is certainly shrinking. And then also not, not only is the time between rounds shrinking, but how fast a round comes together, right? We're talking, it's not weeks anymore, right? It's days that rounds come together. And, you know, I think part of this is part of my personal process is really getting in the mode of really trying to be calculated with when I'm leaning in, right? Because I think the reality is it's very easy to let the market push you in certain directions. FOMO can be a really dangerous thing. Things get hot. A bunch of firms, you know, start to chase a deal. Well, maybe I should chase the deal. Well, then the valuation gets, you know, kind of pushed up from, you know, whatever it was to 30% higher just because there's five firms involved. So I think part of this really is is a lot of like actually self-reflection and self-awareness. And it's, again, kind of coming back to what I was talking about before, like knowing where you want to lean in and where you have conviction. And if you don't have that conviction, it's really important to kind of lean out, right? And so I think it's a little bit of discipline there. And the other thing I would add, I think is important here is I do think there's this weird balance where I do think for a long time in, in some of these situations like fintech, I think the TAMs have been misunderstood. I do think that there is, you know, how we underwrite deals to certain exits and to what the total addressable market looks like 
in some of these cases has been misunderstood because particularly in things like infrastructure, your job, the way an infrastructure play kind mm-hmm. of unfolds over the long kind of like term is there's certainly an initial use case. But if you're building great infrastructure like Stripe, what you're actually doing is, is you're enabling new business models, right? Things that could not be built in the past are being enabled by great products today. Right. And, and so as a result, these TAMs expand over time. And so I do think that that, that is a big piece of this. I think that's understood by the investor community. And so I think that is part of the thing that's, that's pushing that up. Now, do I believe that, that, is, that, that you can rationally say that every dollar of valuation increase is a result of that? I don't think that's the case. Right. I think there's psychological and market pressures here that are, that are outside of that. And so does that mean that we're going to have some washouts at some point in time? It probably does. But I think that's part of the business. And so you kind of have to invest through cycles. Yup, you can't exactly sit idly by hoping for this magical correction, which I thought had been coming since Thanksgiving 2020, and uh, here we are. I don't think your LPs would be too pumped either. So one question I want to follow up on, and this is a question that comes from Twitter from another investor with Wharton Ties. Uh, I'd like to unpack a bit more about investing at stages in the credit cycle. How do you evaluate business models with unit economics that can be very sensitive to cost of capital assumptions such as lending? And given where we are in this credit cycle, a lot of businesses, especially in lending and credit, look incredible. But over time, and you know, the China Evergrande story was what some thought was the reckoning day, the cycle will turn and things can change fast. How do you think about deploying capital in a time like this in the cycle? Yeah, I mean, look, like I think, you know, business model consideration is is a big piece of the evaluation side. You know, I think that, you know, when you have businesses that have upside down economics, you really need to have a bunch of conviction of how you rotate over to to the plus side, right? Um, you have to understand, I think, very, very acutely and in detail how you go from upside down economics mm-hmm. to uh, you know a business model that is producing you know free cash flow, right? <laughs> um, and then profits. And so, look, like I think I think part of that is uh, part of that process is you know I think that there are. There are things like scale that solve problems, et cetera. We've seen in some cases that work, some cases it doesn't. But I think, you know, it, it's more to your kind of example of lending. You know, I, I think it's just one of these things where like you have to get comfortable with these certain business models. And if you, again, don't have an asymmetric information advantage, then you might be making a bet that you shouldn't be mm-hmm. making, right? So you really have to have a ton of confidence here and you have to have something, whether it's experience-wise or you've seen it before in an investment, that tells you that you really firmly believe that this is going to rotate in the right direction. But this is the, this is the challenge right now of underwriting a lot of, of investment opportunities. You know, there's a, a risk adjusted curve. And I think this is why when we talk about the rounds happening, right. um, you know, the, the time between rounds being very short and the speed with which rounds happen, how do you underwrite a deal like that? Right. It's a really great question because in, in a lot of these cases, there haven't been a lot of new cards turned over since the last round. The business is exactly the same. The risk profile is exactly the same. Product market fit hasn't been found. And yet the valuation is three, five, <laughs> seven X higher than what it was right. six months ago. Yeah. Right. And so look, like one of the ways to get around this or one of the ways to think about it is you're doing, you know, some firms are doing this. They're just taking a barbell approach. Right. Right. Which is they're going into pre-seed and seed and they actually don't care what the price okay. is. Because they're basically saying, look, the difference between me losing two or three million dollars at seed, and this is what's happening with, with you know the larger funds, 
look, you make a bet, a two to four or $5 million seed, it doesn't matter whether that's valuation is at 15, 20, 25, or 30. Like it's either going to be a one or a zero, right? And so the valuation, frankly, is almost to some extent, it's viewed as a, it's, it's just a call option, right? So get in at any price, avoid A's to almost every extent because an A happens is, you know, almost within six to 12 months, but nothing has really changed in the right. business, right? And you're going to pay a massive uptick on the valuation. So a lot of firms are going barbell with super, you know, pre-seed and seed, and then going into B's and C's really hard and trying to buy up as much ownership once things, um, you know, the risk adjusted curve has kind of like changed. So that's, that's how a lot, I think a lot of people are handling this stuff. Yeah, I love that barbell comparison. Something that's been covered on a lot of episodes. And of course, we saw Andreessen and Greylock just ma- launched massive seed funds as well to get earlier and earlier. And so that cards turning over analogy that you use also, I love that one. That's something that Frank Rotman of QED, a good friend of Wharton Fintech, has spoken a lot about. You know, when I'm putting in capital to a company, one part of it is how much am I going to learn about this business with this check? And then more importantly, how much is the founder and their team going to learn over the next year? But as you said, that time frame is so compressed. How much can you really learn about a company in four months of a Jack LaMotta raging bull market? It's crazy times. And so focusing back on fintech investing, Justin, you know, it's a highly technical, highly regulated industry with competition sprouting up from all angles. I'd love to learn what investor checklist you rely on, if any, um, and, you know, so when you sit down and hear that pitch from the founder, what are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of the fintech specific area, I mean, I think that fintech has sort of over the last you know, two and a half, three years become a very hot area. And as a result of that, I think what we've seen to some extent is we've seen some founders. I think what matters is how companies come together from from that initial like formation phase. Like, why are you going to go solve the problem you're trying to solve? Why are you working with this person, right, um, as your co-founders? And what we've seen in some cases in fintech is, like, there's some tourism going on, right, where you have <laughs> people. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's actually okay that you don't have fintech experience. Like that's, it's not a prerequisite, right. right, in any way. But what is required is that you have a level of curiosity and a level of interest in the space and a willingness to become not a tourist. And what I've found in some of these early kind of stages mm-hmm. is that it's either A, difficult to tell that, or B, it's very obvious in some cases <laughs> to tell that because it's so clear that someone is just starting a company and is attacking something in fintech because that's a place that money is kind of sloshing around. And that's a really challenging place to be, right? Like I think like you shouldn't start a company because fintech is hot right? Like you want to start a fintech company because you're either A, obsessed with solving this problem right. because you learned about it in some way, whether it's through direct experience, or maybe you learned about it because you read about it and you're like, listen, like, you know, I, I want to go spend the rest of my life figuring this out, right? In the next 10 years. And so I think fintech specifically is a place where it's pretty dangerous. Regulated industries, healthcare, you know, financial services, they are a place that it is not for the faint of heart. And being a tourist is very dangerous. It's a great way to just burn a bunch of money and make a bunch of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things like asking questions like, do you understand the regulatory environment that you're entering? (laughs) You know, Um, how are you approaching it? What, what, What does it mean? Because like, 
you know, one of the lessons I learned at Stripe and John Zier, the, the general counsel at Stripe for a long time had this kind of motto of just like, don't surprise your regulator ever. <laughs> like ever, don't ever surprise them. Anytime you're doing something that's going to be a regulated kind of product, you should be bringing them along for the ride. And, you know, this kind of like move fast and break things, it does, does not, not work, work particularly well. <laughs> and we've seen this with everything that's happened in the news the last few weeks, Coinbase's lending product, mm-hmm. you know, like that approach, certainly, you know, they're doing what they're doing and they're doing how they want to do it. And that's fine. But certainly not how I would have approached those problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I would have gone about it in a different way. And so I think working with founders and, and really kind of digging in on asking them questions to figure out, like, do you understand the journey that you are about to embark on and why is that interesting to you? Because I do think one of the great things about fintech is the regulatory framework and the constraints that are created around it actually are a source of a ton of creativity mm-hmm. and problem solving, which is why it's super exciting. Because if you crack a nut that everyone else is unwilling to go for, you know, the, the upside is massive. Right. Yeah. Very tough businesses to crack. And like you said, the upside is amazing. And so last question before we get to the rapid fire round here, has that framework changed at all as you think about, you know, maybe your angel investments or is it even more so? You have this prolific angel portfolio with companies like Move, Privacy.com, which is now Lithic, Alloy and others. Have you thought about, you know, kind of changing this framework? Do you take a different approach with angeling? It's, I think it's actually an entirely different mindset, frankly. I mean, I, I think that it's something that, I, that you know to be the case, that when you are going into venture, the muscle and the motion of winning deals to lead, right, to lead deals is very different than writing angel checks, right? Because basically there's one slot when you win a deal, right? To lead deals, there's one slot. And when you're an angel, there's, there's a lot of slots, right? And so it's a, just a different kind of motion. When you're writing angel checks, a lot of times, you're writing an angel check because there's a whole bunch of actually reasons why you write angel checks, right? Sometimes it's, it's my friend and I want to support them. Sometimes it's, I'm really interested in this space and I'm actually willing to go ahead and have a flyer and throw some money in. And if I lose it, it's okay. And then there are some cases, you know, where you're making bets because you think you're going to make a lot of money on it. But, but angel investing over the arc of time has shown that that's actually quite difficult, right? You know, you're going to have one company that does really well and you're going to have a lot of companies that, that, that don't do and that, that's the power of law, et cetera. Right. And that works in, it, it's the same adventure. But the difference is here is, is you only win uh, as, a, as a venture investor when you're a pr- professional at a VC firm, there's only one spot to win and there's only one spot to lead. And so the motion of winning deals is a big, big piece of the, of the puzzle, right? And so that's relationship building, that's showing value. And frankly, it's just kind of being relentless <laughs> to some extent, right? <laughs> and so I think that that is the very different kind of reality of, you know, that's why I think some folks, it's not always the case that being a good angel investor means that you're going to be a good VC because mm-hmm. they're different skills. Well, Justin, this conversation has been great. You have reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about five to 10 questions for you, Max, you know, five to 10 second reply. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Some fun ones coming up. First one, what is the, your first job that you ever had? Uh, first job was uh, working for my father's uh, construction company. <laughs> I love that. Second one, who is your fintech hero? And you can't pick a portfolio company or investments, so it makes it easier. Yeah, I would say on the investor side, I think very highly of Matt Harris. I think he's an incredible investor. Of course. Uh, he's a mentor, a friend of mine, and he's just also like an all-around nice person. <laughs> um, so, so on the investor side, Matt. On the operating side, I think... I think Max Levchin is just, you know, I mean, like Max has done so many things. Yeah. 
Uh, what are some fintech content that you read every week to try and stay informed? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I I read a, a lot of stuff. I mean, I think I you know read up on things like you know fintech today. You know, I think it's pretty good. I think they do a, a decent job. I read a bunch of other stuff that sort of is like it's more like tweets and Twitter than it is like <laughs> what I would describe as like specific uh, newsletters. Right. One of the things I I try to to think about on on like what should I be reading side is trying to figure out like what are the areas of interest that I have and and how does that you know like fit I think Alex Johnson's mm-hmm. uh, who's a uh, cornerstone advisors I think some of his stuff is really good it, he gets really in the weeds of some of the stuff that's happening he like does. underneath like what's what's going on you know with the bank like what's actually happening I think is really good and then I I, I read a lot of general stuff but I, I would say those are some of the ones that I that I read today those are great um, all right, next one. This is one that I saw you tweet about a while ago, the MasterCard OnlyFans fiasco. Do you think this is going to become more common or less common over the next year? There's a few things. I think the issue there is that how payment processors or how, how fintechs basically are interacting with A, the large incumbents, and B, with the regulators and, and the bank sponsors that they work with, right? Like that's really what's going on. And you know, it's a big challenge. And I think, you know, do I think this is going to happen more? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, like you're going to have situations where how entities, whether it's companies or governments regulate themselves or regulate people that are using their products, it's going to happen. I think part of it is thinking through like first principles and, you know, sort of the thing that we kind of see as a challenge right now is like, look, like a lot of the stuff that things like Stripe and, and a lot of these fintechs are built on in terms of, you know, acquirer relationships, bank sponsors, you know, the world is fintech right now is, is you have a lot of new technology being built on old infrastructure. And what if somebody built a sponsor bank from the ground up today with first principles around like, what does crypto fintech and payments need, right? That's more interesting to me than anything. Mm -hmm. Love that. All right. Next one. You had mentioned earlier Libra and Facebook. The audio actually cut out for a second on my end. What do you think is people most misunderstand about the Libra Facebook uh, initiative? I don't really know what it, what, what they misunderstand. I, I, I think that the bigger thing is like, I, I thought it was a remarkable move from Facebook, frankly. Like I've actually tweeted this out several times at, at different points, but like set the stage, right? Like at the time, the Cambridge Analytica stand, uh, scandal is happening, right? Mm-hmm. The election is just has just been, you know, kind of like, you know, wound down essentially. Cambridge Analytica stuff comes out. Crazy. Uh, you know, Facebook is getting hauled in front of like Congress, right? Yeah. And in the midst of that, right, they are in a place where they are a consumer internet business that is not regulated in any fashion, right? Like it is one of the best places to be. They are not regulated in any way from from an official construct. Certainly, Congress is getting involved, but there, there's no official regulation. And what do they decide to do? They decide to not only enter fintech and enter the kind of realm of being in a regulated industry, but they decide to do it with crypto in a way where they're trying to figure out how to onboard, you know, people to crypto through the standard pipes, the standard on-ramps using, you know, Visa MasterCard. The sheer kind of like mindset that they had to have to decide to do that is like fascinating to me. I mean, it is such a like Leroy Jenkins moment to do that all at the same time. I mean, it's just, it's actually, right. it's pretty remarkable. And I like commend them on their just like, frankly, no fucks given approach, right? Cause right. that's really what that was. 
So I think it was fascinating from like a strategic move perspective. You know, look, like it's very early in that game and we still don't know a lot about what Libra is or what it will become. Um, I, I worked on it from, from my side and, right. and certainly am held by a lot of confidentiality there. But mm-hmm. it's a fascinating project. You know, if it worked or if it works, you know, I think like at the end, like it's good for humanity because it creates a lot of uh, solutions for some problems that we've had in, in other places. I think in the downfall, whatever you will, the fizzle out of Libra, people had a blast dunking on Facebook for the initiative. It's a failure. They ripped the current logo, et cetera. It's an amazing initiative that they took on. And kudos to them for for trying to push this forward. Yeah. So last question here. This is a fun one, Justin, and you cannot say meeting your wife. What is your favorite Wharton memory? I'd say uh, the friendships I made from the, the rugby team. Oh, you're a rugby guy. Probably, right. Yeah, I played rugby, uh, the friendships I made there. And then I also think the other thing is I had a really close group of friends that kind of you know, spun out with a group of guys. So some were rugby, some were not. But, um, you know, those are lifelong friendships. I'm sure you have them from your time. But um, we have email, you know, WhatsApp chats, you know, that go on, you know, and we try to get together as much as possible. But um, those friendships are, are lifelong and they're uh, folks that I hold very dearly in my life. That's great. Yeah, the rugby cult at, at Wharton is very strong for those that are <laughs> unaware. And there's this kind of cabal of, of Wharton fintech alum that Justin is a part of with Charles, Io Mojla, and, and a, quite a few others. Well, Justin, with that, we can wrap up. I want to thank you for coming on today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It has been an honor to share the mic one last time, as I said earlier, with now a fellow Wharton alum as I am graduated as well. Thank you for coming on. Hey, man, thanks for having me. This was really exciting. And uh, hopefully you can get Io on here someday because he's uh, he's an amazing person you should talk to. Yeah, we actually connected and he was like, well, I'm at Carbon now. I'm not really in fintech. Maybe I could come on, maybe not. So I'll pass it along to uh, the next year's host for sure. He'd be a great guest. Good stuff. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. I will keep this goodbye short and sweet. As I mentioned at the start, sharing the stories of 200 of the world's top builders, investors, and thinkers in global fintech has been the honor of my career. Dedicating half of my MBA to record podcasts and write articles locked away in my room was, I think, the best decision I've ever made. I've made more lifelong friends than I could have imagined and met amazing people that have changed my life while learning about this incredible industry. Special thank you to Peter Jankowski, Kiana Sani, Daniel McCauley, and Steve Weiner for paving the way, Miguel Armasa for being my crazy co-pilot over the last two years and always daring to think bigger, to Rafo for doing pristine editing on the craziest timelines we demanded, to the new host for keeping the show going strong, and of course, to all my guests. Have a wonderful new year, everyone, and thank you for tuning into our show. I've since moved to the Bay Area, still working in fintech, and would love to meet some of you. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Signing off for one last time, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.